of things. And we try to figure out what's going on and, and how are we going to go about it. But we have to keep these two things in mind. Because if we don't, we lose sight of the, uh, of the forest for the trees. So before I begin Matthew 24, I think that is a very good uh, just background of things we have to keep in mind. And I think we have to give each other grace, too. As I tried to get a couple different viewpoints of Matthew 24 this week. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times people become militant in their positions. And we have to realize that, you know, I will grant it, there are some people out there who, who will die on their end times eschatology view. But I don't necessarily think, um, as a Christian, you have to give leeway to other people. Now, if you take a step back and say, well, these two things aren't going to happen, you have to die on these two hills. That God's in control and that Jesus will return. Those are hills you have to die on. But how long the tribulation is going to be, when we're going to be taken up, what does Israel and the Jews look like in the end times, I think we have to take uh, a glance at it and give one another grace and say, there is a distinct possibility. There is a possibility that my interpretation of the scripture could be incorrect. Because there are a lot of things here that are going on that are difficult to interpret. So I just wanted to lay that out before we begin Matthew 24 and uh, to give one another grace and that we will have disagreeing opinions on different things that are happening in Matthew 24 and other passages of Scripture. So as I said, we'll begin in verse uh, verse 1, and I I think we'll only get through three verses today. And um, I think Matthew 24 in this part, uh, verses 1 and 2, I think they're pretty plain as to what's going to happen. I didn't. I read um, a couple commentaries this week, and most commentators agreed that what Christ is talking about here is is the fall of Jerusalem. But let's get started. Mark tells us in chapter thirteen, uh, along with Matthew, that Christ and his disciples were leaving the temple uh, when one of them, presumably Peter, makes an observational statement to our Lord. And that's the statement we see here in verse 1. As Jesus goes out of the temple, his disciples came up to him in the building of the temple and were showing him all these things. If you want to turn to Mark 13 real quick, I'll go ahead and read that. Mark 13. Then as they went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus was presumably in the temple at this time. If you look at uh, Mark 12, at the end of it, it's the widow and her two uh, mites as she was at the treasury. So Jesus was at the temple. And now they're leaving the temple complex. And the disciples are trying to stop Jesus and say, Lord, look at how beautiful the temple is. Look at the gold. Look at the structure. Look at this physical building. I think it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Really nothing was comparable to it. Luke also affirmed this in chapter 21, how they spoke of it, I quote, and being adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Jesus prophesied, and I think the disciples are going back and remembering what Christ said in John 2.19. Remember, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and in three days raise it up. And then in Matthew 23, at the end of Matthew 23, Our Lord says in verse 38, See, 
your house is left to you desolate. So I think the disciples, as Jesus is leaving here, are recalling to mind that Christ and his prophecy and what he said was going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple. And I think we have to keep that in mind here as we're going through especially the first couple of verses. You know, the disciples maybe said to Jesus, Jesus, you say that it would be destroyed, but don't you see the grandeur of it? Don't you see the beauty of it? The glory of the temple? I mean, this is what God in the Old Testament had commissioned Solomon to build for him. You know, this is where the Jews go to worship God, to honor God. You know, look what you're missing. And a couple of the ancient accounts of what the temple looked like, there's not a, we don't obviously have a picture of what the temple looked like, but Josephus described to us what this temple looked like. Some of the stones were like 60 feet tall. They cut these out in a quarry to absolute precision. I mean, 60 feet, that, that is huge. It's probably from here to the, to the end of the pews. That's probably pretty close to 60 feet. And in the ancient times, 2,000 years ago, I mean, think how, think how uh, laborious that was to be able to chisel out 60 feet of stone and not only move it from the quarry, but then move it all the way to the temple complex. And then just, uh, Josephus also described that the stones were so white that from a distance it looked like a snow-covered mountaintop. So as you were approaching Jerusalem, you could look out and you could see the temple, this beautiful temp- temple that Herod the Great had uh, been building, and you could see it, and it looked like uh, Mount Fuji. Anyone ever seen Mount Fuji in Japan? You know, you look out and you see the, the, white, the white mountain cap. I think that's what the temple looked like. An interesting side note, too, about the temple is that in Jesus' time, it had been started, I think, in like uh, 16 B.C. So if we give this a couple years, you know, 33 A.D., so what is that, about 50 years prior is when the temple had been started building, is it was still in the process of construction at this time. And some accounts even have it to going all the way until 70 A.D. when it was destroyed, is that it was still under construction. But nonetheless, we have here the disciples are in grain with the absolute splendor and the beauty of the temple. Is that a bird? (laughs) So, as we continue on, uh, John Calvin in his commentary had a very interesting thought. And I want to go ahead and read it here about the disciples. And I'm classifying the disciples with the rest of the Jews because I think at this time they didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying when he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, as we see here. But Calvin says, and I quote, As the vast size and wealth of the temple, like a veil hung before the eyes of the disciples, did not permit them to elevate their faith to the true reign of Christ, which was still future. So he affirms with an oath that those things which occupy their attention will quickly perish. That is the temple and Jerusalem. This prediction of the destruction of the temple, therefore, opened up a path for the ignorant and the weak. Now, though it was advantageous that the temple should be destroyed, lest its service and shadow the mighty excess and undue influence of the Jews, who were already too much attached to the earthly elements, Yet the chief reason was that God determined by this dreadful example to take vengeance on that nation for having rejected his son and despising the grace which was brought by him. So we'll look at this a little later. But Calvin here thinks in his institutes and his commentaries that, you know, this temple ironically represented a veil that was over their eyes. And as we remember later on in Matthew, when the temple was torn in two at at Christ's death, you know, it represented... 
No more was God separated from man. And he kind of uses that illustration here that the temple was like a log in the disciples' eyes. They couldn't see the true temple. That is Jesus Christ and what he was going to do. They were fixated on the physical. And I think here that is what Jesus is telling us in verse 2 is that this temple is going to be destroyed. And I want to look at a couple Old Testament passages I think that help us illustrate how Israel and the Jews have a tendency to use the physical manifest or the physical items that God had given to them to represent God, how they turned those over really to idolatry, almost as what the disciples were doing here with the temple. So if you want, turn with me to 1 Samuel 4, and I'm just going to read uh, the first six verses. And this is the first illustration of, of really how the, Jew, uh, the Jews perverted the things of God and, and turned, them, uh, turned them into an idol. 1 Samuel 4, and it's going to be uh, verses 1 to 6. And the ark of God captured, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does that sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into their camp. And as you continue down in this story, you'll see that even though the Ark of the Covenant was in the camp of the Israelites when they went out to battle against the Philistines, that God punished them and that 30,000 Israelite soldiers were slaughtered in that battle. You know, that's a pretty, that's a huge number of ancient battlefields of 30,000 men. But this story goes to represent is that the Jews, the Israelites at this time, what did they do? They had the Ark of the Covenant, which in and of itself, there was nothing wrong with the Ark of the Covenant. But you see their reasoning is they're going back through and they're saying, well, if we had the Ark of the Covenant, kind of like as a good luck charm and we bring it to us, then surely the Lord will be on our side. And that will defeat the Philistines. They thought because they lost 4,000 men and they didn't have the Ark, that's why they were defeated. So they went out and they brought the physical Ark into the camp of the Israelites. And, you know, they shouted for joy and the Philistines trembled. And here to find out is that they lost the next day 30,000 people. And it wasn't because the Ark was there, but it was because of their mindset. They looked at this Ark and said, well, surely since the Ark is with us, then the presence of God is surely going to be with us. As the, as the disciples in Matthew 24 saw the temple and all its grandeur, all that they were looking at was the physical beauty of it. They weren't looking at the, the beauty of Christ and what Christ represented as him being the true temple. And so the Israelites here in 1 Samuel 4 do the same thing. And then if you look at the end of the passage... 
And you, you'll see here, when Phineas's wife gave birth, she named the child Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel. So the glory of God departed from Israel. It was their punishment. And I think we'll see that as it plays out in Matthew 24. This destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is punishment for what the Jews did to Christ and how they viewed the temple. Were not the disciples committing the same, same mistake with the temple, asking Jesus, telling him about its glory, describing to him its physical beauty and glory? And the next passage I want to look at uh, that has an equivalence is Jeremiah 7, 1 to 4, and 13. And if you want to turn there, I'll be there just for a couple minutes. But I think this also pertains to what the disciples were viewing the temple as. And as 600 years prior, when Jeremiah was a prophet, how the Jews then viewed the temple was very similar to how the disciples and the people in Jesus' time viewed that temple. So Jeremiah 7, 1 to 4, and then I'm also going to read uh, verse 12. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Verse 12, But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. We have in this time of Israel, in Judah, specifically the southern kingdom, when Jeremiah is prophesying in the temple at the command of God. He's standing at the gates. And the, the children of Israel at this time, they still had the temple. As you see in verse uh, 4, where Jeremiah is kind of harassing them, saying, you say you have the temple of the Lord. And a three-peat, a repetition of three times in the Hebrew language represents significance. Uh, if you remember in Isaiah 6, where the cherubim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that's a three-peat, three times in a row, is significance in the Hebrew language. And Jeremiah is saying here, as you boast that you have the temple, as you boast that you have the holy city Jerusalem, but your works and your heart are far from me. We see an example of when Jeremiah the prophet preached in the gate of the temple. Uh, the people for years, they still practiced idolatry, harlotry, and if you go on in Jeremiah 7, even child sacrifice, while still maintaining a synchronous worship to the Lord and the temple. The Jews... They thought since they had the temple, the physical temple, that they were under the protection of God. And years later, that would not be the case when Nebuchadnezzar three times would lay siege to Jerusalem. And then the third time, he would raise Jerusalem to the ground and destroy the temple. So I wanted to give these two examples. Is that what the disciples are doing and what the Jews are doing is the same thing that they had done historically in the Old Testament. As God punished the children of Israel in 1 Samuel 4, 30,000 people died and the ark of God was captured. And then in Jeremiah 7, you have Jeremiah prophesying 
you have the temple, but your heart is far from God. And so, too, going back to Matthew 24, the children of, or the Jews specifically, and the disciples at this time, still think that they, since they have the temple and they have the sacrifice and they're rebuilding it, that they're under the protection of God. You know, that they're still in the, the pleasure and the, in the uh, right eye of God. But that's not the case. Jesus specifically says here in verse 2 of Matthew 24, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So, and what I want to look at Matthew 24 is, you know, some people look at it as completely in the future. Other people, uh, which is called a full preterist, think that everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. But maybe it's a hybrid. But I think we have to take into account the prior examples of the idolatry of the children of Israel. And they got punished. So isn't it possible that the children of Israel and the Jews, as they're looking at the temple now, is that what Jesus is prophesying is another punishment for them in 40 years, in 70 AD. Christ's words pertaining to this uh, discourse uh, for verses 1, 2, and 3. I think uh, Jesus in his, in his prophecy, I think we can take comfort in it. As believers, the words of Christ here are, a wonderful, are wonderful and promising. The physical temple that was destroyed in 70 AD was just that, a physical temple. It, like the ark, pointed to Christ. And I'll pause here for a moment if anyone has anything to add. Please feel free. Every time I talk, it always feels like, you know, no one, no one ever raises their hand. But please, if you have anything to say, please interject. Well, I guess not. I guess I've answered it. Oh, H.A. Yeah, definitely. And I think, and I, I throw the disciples down, but I think everyone in here would know that if you were in the same place as the disciples, your eyes and ears would be blinded at this point. You wouldn't be able to see the promise. So we use the disciples kind of sometimes as like a poison pill. You know, we kind of throw them off to the side, but they were in the same boat that we are. You know, Jesus is making these prophecies, and if you would see the temple, you'd be thinking to yourself, well, how, Jesus, I mean, Look at how beautiful this thing is. Look at our worship. You know, we're sacrificing to God, but yet the vast majority of the Jews, their hearts were completely alien from God. And especially the promise, if they read the Old Testament, that they would see that the temple was simply pointing to the day of Christ. You know, the temple was not the end-all, be-all. It was pointing to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who would come. And any Jew, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you know, Aren't you a teacher of Israel? Aren't you supposed to know these things? In the scriptures, if you look back in the Old Testament, you were supposed to see these things, that the temple was not the end-all, be-all. It simply pointed 
to Christ. And that's what the disciples here are missing. And I think that's what the vast majority of, of Jews are missing. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that since the Jews missed it, and that really they, and Peter says in Acts 2, you know, men of Israel, you who put Jesus Christ to death, that this is punishment, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Continuing on, the disciples didn't see that Christ is the actual temple not made with hands. No gold or granite or carvings. No, the sinless son of God, the true temple. And Jesus says in Matthew twelve six, Yet I say unto you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Think of that. If you were a Jew in those days, and Christ is standing in the midst of the temple, he says, there is one greater than the temple. I always think of John 8, 48, when Jesus is talking back and forth with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Isn't that amazing? And they picked up stones to stone Jesus. But he was a fulfillment of that. You know, the God-man, the true temple, the true worship was in their midst. Pertaining to this, at the catastrophe that was 70 AD, is it fair to say that what our Lord addresses here in Matthew 24 has a lot to do with the fall of Jerusalem? Now, I won't get into it, but if you go past verse uh, 3, if you start into 4, all the way down to 26... Uh, a guy I listened to this week, I think he was a, a, a dispensational, uh, dispensationalist, premillennial, but uh, he takes this to be as all in the future. But just the catastrophe that was 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, I think we at least have to consider that it is possible that what Jesus is talking about in verse 1 and 2 is also what he is talking about here in verses 4. To 28. If you look down at verses um, 19, I'm sorry, verse 17. No, I take that back. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been seen seen since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And what Jesus is telling here, what he's prophesying in 70 AD, is flee to the mountains. I can't think of the gentleman's name off the top of my head, but there was an early church father who said that many Christian or many Jewish Christians in 70 AD read this passage in Matthew 24 when Titus and the Roman armies were descending upon Jerusalem and they heeded Christ's words to flee to the mountains and flee to the surrounding hills around Jerusalem. That's how a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were saved is because they went and put them up in the caves around Jerusalem, around that. In ancient, in ancient history, really no matter what seed you look at, the thing to do was for all the populace around the surrounding countryside was to go and to go into Jerusalem or go into any city that was being besieged. 
Because if you're a peasant, you know, the Roman army comes along, you have no chance. They'll mow you down like grass. So what do you do is you go and stand behind the huge, thick walls of Jerusalem. And that's what the Jews did. That's why there was such a holocaust. That's why there was such a slaughter in 70 AD is because many of the Jewish people, they went into Jerusalem. While many of the Christians, reading Matthew 24, heeded the words of Christ and fled to the mountains where they were safe. I looked up uh, the seven greatest sieges in ancient warfare. Or actually, the seven greatest sieges in warfare. The first siege was uh, like in 1500 BC, uh, Megiddo, which is famous in the Bible, but the Pharaoh had besieged it. You know, then there was the, the uh, siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, there was a siege of Carthage in like 150 by the Romans. But you see these sieges are historically brutal. And the Christians that paid attention to what Christ said were able to flee and avoid the destruction. But I also think we have to take into account too just the catastrophe that 70 AD was. As I said a little bit ago, up to 1 million Jews, I think Josephus said, up to 1 million Jews were slaughtered in 70 AD at the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a catastrophe. I mean, if you think the population in the world back in those days was only, you know, 100 million people, 200 million people, that's 1% of the world's population. You know, that'd be like uh, someone, 7 billion people, what's 1% of 7 billion? Is that 70 million? You know, that's 70 million people in a couple months period of time getting slaughtered. I mean, that's an absolute catastrophe on World War II standards. So I think as, as we read Matthew 24, we really have to take into consideration that, yes, I think there is future prophecy involved here, but we really have to realize how brutal and how bad the destruction of Jerusalem was and that Jesus' prophecy in verse 1 and 2 was a warning to those Christians that would listen to flee to the, to the mountains. Is it fair to say, and uh, from my notes, is it fair to say that this prophecy was punishment for the almost complete rejection of Christ by the Jewish nation? I can't help but think that there is more of the prophecy of verse 1 to 3 in the rest of the chapter. Uh, Christ says so in Matthew 23, 37 to 38. If you look just prior to that, I read it earlier. But, you know, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem and the Jews rejecting him. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But how Christ first came to his own, but they rejected him. Matthew 27, 41 to 43. This is just more anecdotal evidence. The attitude of the Jews to Christ. And you don't have to flip there if you don't want to. I'm just going to read them real quick. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking him with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The leaders of Israel taunting Christ as he's up on the cross. Mark fifteen twenty nine to 30. And this is the general population 
as they passed by Christ. And those who passed by him blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. They're taunting Jesus and the words he said in John 2.19, I will build this temple, or I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But who got the last laugh? 40 years later. And as I said this earlier, Peter condemns the men of Israel in Acts 22, or Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to, to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves have known, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Jesus condemns the nation of Israel and the Jewish people for rejecting Christ, for crucifying Christ, and putting him to death. And even after that, if you look, as we go through the New Testament, you'll see the opposition that the Apostle Paul had oftentimes was from the Jewish people, even to this day. And again, the prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D., when Titus captured Jerusalem and put to the sword over one million Jews. And then you had the diaspora after that. The Jews you know, went all over Europe and North Africa, Western Europe, uh, and even Eastern Europe, to where they were scattered uh, for thousands of years. But just taking these things into consideration, I do really think we need to uh, really appreciate the destruction of the temple and how significant it was. Uh, even in biblical history, the end of the Jewish age, and then it appears the beginning of a Gentile age where the gospel goes around the whole earth. So as I close up here a couple minutes early, if anyone has any comments or questions, you know, please feel free to say them out now. And I can imagine, you know, even uh, people at Bible Chapel, not everyone, you know, agrees end times wise. There may be some people who think this is, you know, completely in the future, as I said, but, um, We just can't become ideologues. We have to continually renew our minds, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. So if anyone has any comments or questions, you know, please feel to shout them out. Or if you don't feel comfortable, you can come to me afterwards and verbally assault me if you want. All right, well, that's about it I have today. I'm uh, done about eight minutes early, so treat for you. And I'm just going to go ahead and uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given us. And uh, I ask that these words as we read here in Matthew 24, that we would not lose sight, Lord, of your eternal kingdom that will will come eventually. And Lord, that's the real joy. That's the real truth. Thank you again for all that you've given to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let let me close with these words from Revelation 21, 22, and 23. This is very important. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty... And the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the triune God, is the true temple. Thank you very much.